Um, I would like to start by asking you to tell this story that you told in a little more detail in, in your talk here at Chautauqua, the story of how you came to write the book, which is a good story. <laughs> well, I started off, um, as I described, um, so actually, let me backtrack. So are we going to be referring to Chautauqua here? And I don't I mean, know. How do you no, let's not. I, w- I think we should pretend. We'll we'll probably say that we did it at Chautauqua just to give them some credit. Okay. But let's so how not, did I just yeah the just tell how the story? I, okay. Yeah, yeah. But you did tell you told a little bit more. I mean, especially about your arthritis that I don't think uh-huh. you had mentioned in in the book. Right. I think no, I hadn't okay. mentioned yeah. in the book. The interesting yeah. thing is when I wrote the book, I tried to separate my own personal life experiences, my own illness, and the stresses I was going through from the writing of the book. And it's because I was coming at it from a very um, scientific point of view. In a way, there's two halves of me. There's the person and there's the scientist. And I think everybody who's trained in science is trained to become very objective, skeptical, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, In order to do the research, you have to be able to take yourself out of the picture. Um, and so when I, when I wrote the book, I was still in that mode. Uh, I was observing the world as a scientist as opposed to um, putting myself in the middle of it. But what happened is that I had written, I was asked to write an article for the Scientific American on the science of the mind-body connection. And that would have been a scholarly essay. That was a very scholarly for other scholars. essay. Okay. And, and it, if anybody who's read the Scientific American knows that it's written in very dense, very... Um, um, scientific language, although it's supposed to be for a general audience, it's still for a general scientific audience. And um, and you're highly edited to stick in that mold and remove all emotion from it. And that was fine, because that's how I was used to writing my scientific papers. Um, and so I was writing the article for the Scientific American. What was the topic of the article? It was article? the science of the mind-body connection. Okay. And, and the issue is that this field has been around for thousands of years, right? The notion that stress can make you sick, that believing can make you well, um, that loving could make you well. All of these things are things that your grandmother told you, that you know in your heart of hearts, right? Mm -hmm. That the ancient Greeks knew, that the ancient Asians, the Chinese, Japanese tradition, go into any culture, the Indian tradition. This is known for thousands of years. Um, And so... And in and, and every era, scientists and physicians have tried to explain these connections using their best available tools. So the question of how emotions and disease are linked were assumed um, in the time of Hippo- in Hippocrates, ancient Greece, 500 B.C., um, in the time of Galen, the Romans, um, and all through the centuries. And it's actually an issue that I address in my book. If we've known this for so long... right. Where did we go wrong and when did we go wrong? How did we forget if we once knew that? Exactly. How Mm -hmm. did we forget? Why did we forget? Mm -hmm. And have we found our way back to what are are sort of obvious principles of health, Mm -hmm. that emotions do have something to do with disease, that disease does have something to do with emotional health, and that health lies in the balance? Um, So that's actually how I start the book, with that that question. And... um, and I started in ancient Greece. Um, it is focused on the Western, on Western medicine. And I start with the temples to Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. And those temples were built 
um, at tops of tops of hills overlooking the Aegean or the Mediterranean um, with beautiful views near always near a freshwater source. Uh, people came there to be healed with fresh water, healthy food, sleep, dreams, music. Music was very important. Exercise. The, the ramps to these temples to Asclepius were built in a long, low slope so that people who could not walk would be able to be helped up these slopes uh, easily. Um, and but more important than anything else, there were social interactions, rich social interactions mm-hmm. with people who could help. Um, there was also prayer. So these places were places of healing, and they're like modern-day spas mm-hmm. in a way. But serendipitously or coincidentally or by the intervention of the gods, you found yourself actually physically in that place, yes. right, as you yes, were writing the right. book. Right. I mean, so. So, well, that um, I guess I should start then, go back to the Scientific American article and how I got to the temples to Asclepius. Um, so I was writing this Scientific American article in this very serious academic scholarly way mm-hmm. and um, finished the article, was editing it by my mother's bedside when she was dying of breast cancer. And, um, and so I would be sitting there with my laptop um, on the armchair in the room, and every time she'd wake up, she'd look at me and and start ask me what I was writing about and engage me in these very animated discussions. She was a very feisty lady, and, and she would not let go of the topic. She asked me, why am I just focusing on stress and disease? Why aren't you putting something in there about belief? <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Can I start that one again? Yeah, it's okay. You can start yeah, again. Frog my Would you turn down my volume a little bit? It is kind of loud. I know. I've never asked you this before. It's loud. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. So I would sit by my, my by my mother's bedside as I was editing the Scientific American article, and whenever she'd wake up and open her eyes, she'd engage me in these very lively discussions. Um, and as I said, she was a very feisty lady, and uh-huh. she wouldn't let go. Um, that asking me why I was focusing only on stress and illness as opposed to belief and healing. What did she mean when she used the word belief? Well, so it's very interesting because when I was young, she didn't really practice Orthodox Judaism in any way. My grandmother was very Orthodox. Um, But, and of course we participated in the family um, tradition, but... After my grandfather died and then after my grandmother died and um, certainly after my father died, my mother became more and more observant going back to the way she'd been raised and lighting the candles and uh, every Friday night on the Sabbath. And um, and I think praying in her own way, although it wasn't really o- overt uh, and open, but one of the things that she did that she found very soothing was she gardened. Hmm. And... She would say that gardening for her was a time when she could think and contemplate and be in her own space. Um, and I know that doesn't sound like belief in anything in particular, but it's an activity that allows you in some ways to meditate. Um, and 
And to and focus on beauty, on, on something positive. On growth, growth. Yes, yes, growth, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and then the other funny thing about this is it happened that her nurse in the hospital was a Hasidic um, uh, Orthodox practicing um, Jewish lady, and the two of them would gang up on me while I was writing this article. <laughs> <laughs> and And... The Hasidic nurse, of course, knew all the scriptures and and came out with all sorts of arguments why I should be including belief and healing in it. And my mother was on the emotional side. And I would take the scientific side that this is not proven, Mm -hmm. that this is not something I can put in this article. And I was very, you know, stern about it. And and so um, I published the article my own way, uh, which was talking about stress and illness. Now, in part, or really in large part, it's because when I was writing it, which was 1996, this field was still not accepted. Mm-hmm. We're not even talking about belief in healing. Which We're talking about stress and illness. That in such a short time, the field has just opened up and exploded. Well, and I think it's because the research, the scientific research, has opened up and exploded. Mm-hmm. And that's really what happened. I mean, the, coming back to that very first question and asking have we found our way back? We have, but mm-hmm. we found our way back through the language of science. Right. Which also is fascinating, that it's science that, that forgot or that couldn't incorporate emotions, right, and belief That's right. into what was measurable and real. Yes, exactly. And it's also science that has, that has now established that connection. Right. Well, so one of the, the, the conclusions that I came to in the book, and actually in part also by working on an exhibition at the National Library of Medicine with um, uh, Liz Fee, who's the head of the... Division of the History of Medicine, and also with wonderful curators from from Harvard um, uh, and and Brown, Anne Harrington, and Ted, uh, and sorry, from Harvard and um, Rochester, University of Rochester. So Ted Brown and, and Anne Harrington. Um, there was a push and pull between the historian point of view and the scientific point of view, and I learned a lot from that about where this break came, what what happened mm-hmm. exactly, and and. You know, the simplistic view from from a scientist's point of view of an analysis of the long history of all Mm -hmm. this is that um, scientists um, need evidence. We need measurable proof. That started in, you know, with Descartes in the um, 1600s. And and at that time, you know, four or five hundred years ago, science didn't have the tools to measure something as ephemeral and not concrete, as abstract as an emotion. Um, you know, you can, you can measure disease. Mm-hmm. Disease is an abnormality of anatomy. So with the anatomists of the 16th century, when they started to dissect the human body, they discovered that when there was a pneumonia, there was a hole in the lung. You know, there was a problem in the liver. There was an anatomical problem in the liver. So the assumption became that disease is associated with an abnormality of anatomy, mm-hmm. which allowed huge advances in medicine. Um, you know, Lenneck in the 19th century when he developed the stethoscope developed it so that you could hear problems in the lung, right? right? Without seeing them, you could actually hear them. And, and so that's concrete. That's easy to understand. Mm-hmm. But, but we didn't have the tools until now, until very recently, to see into the human brain, to see the living human brain at work. 
with neuroimaging, we didn't have the tools to see into how the nerve cells function, the biochemistry, the chemicals that change, the nerve chemicals that are released, the electrical activity that changes. We couldn't see into the genes that make these cells function until very, very recently. So... Sorry. So I, th- I think the word emotions is is really is too small for what we're talking. We're, we're, let me just add, tell me if this is right. This is okay. I'm trying to understand this as a non scientist. Um, we're talking about uh, the difference between how you feel and and measurable things that up to now doctors or scientists could see happening physically, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And and what is if and what is the connection between those things sort of that that up until very recently they were they would put those things to one side how you feel or right. or or how that might be affecting what's going on biologically right is that right yes and and not even connecting how you feel with what's going on biologically in your brain right is, is because that something we yes, sort of so, now know yes yeah, so so when you think about it mm-hmm. when you feel an emotion okay when you feel um, since the topic is love, when you feel love, mm-hmm. do you feel it in your head? Do you get a headache? No, I hope not. <laughs> um, you feel it in your heart. You feel yeah. your heart beating fast. Or you feel it in your gut. Or you feel it in your gut, mm-hmm. right. Or you feel sweaty. Mm-hmm. So if you were, put yourself back in the 1600s uh, or before that, um, if you had no way of knowing what this thing in your head, what the brain does, um, you would assume your emotions come from your heart. Mm-hmm. or your liver, mm-hmm. you know, or your gut. And that's what they assumed because that's where they felt it. But they didn't realize, I mean, it took all these years of understanding how the brain works and how the nerves that go to these various organs work to know that your heart is beating faster because a part of your brain is getting activated and it sends signals through nerve chemicals and electrical signals through nerves that innervate the heart that then make your heart beat faster Mm -hmm. or make your heart slow down depending upon what the chemicals are that are released from different nerves that come from different parts of the brain. So, I mean, it took centuries to figure this out. And the fact that you feel happy, is that that also has a biological basis? Yes. So feeling happy, feeling sad, um, feeling angry, (laughs) feeling longing, feeling Mm -hmm. guilt, all of these feelings... Mm Which you may or may not feel in a physical place in your body. Right. You okay, you don't necessarily. As, mm-hmm. Right. But when you feel happy, you may feel this warmth, this suffusing warmth, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there, there are physical feelings that you feel. Um, so, so all of those things come from different parts of your brain that become activated. And when we say activated, we mean that the blood cells, the, um, the uh, blood starts flowing more to certain areas of the brain because the nerve cells there are using up energy, their, their electrical impulses are coming out faster, and they are making more and, and releasing more of these nerve chemicals that allow nerve cells to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, the difference between a computer and the brain, there's um, a, a neuroscientist that, at uh, NIH, Miles Herkenham, who, who, when asked this question, uh, said, what, you know, what's the difference between uh, the brain and, and a computer? And he said, well, the brain is wet. And it's true because it's not... The, <laughs> what these, difference does the that difference, make? Because um, the electrical signals that are transmitted along nerve cells are mm-hmm. not just going along a wire, like a computer uh, wire or, or, or the, the little chips in a, in mm-hmm. a computer... When when the electrical signal comes to the end of that nerve cell's long axon, we call mm-hmm. it the long um, arm of the nerve cell, 
um, the electrical signal has to jump over a gap of of fluid, of fluid that is with between cells. Cells are bathed in this wet fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to jump over to the next cell so that the signal gets con- continued. And the way it does that is nerve cells release nerve chemicals that then float through the fluid like little rafts or boats mm-hmm. carrying okay. <laughs> carrying its cargo, its precious cargo. And then that nerve chemical binds to a receptor on the other nerve cell that then responds with its own electrical impulses that go down to the next. So it's kind of like a relay race where nerve cells signal each other. Uh, but the very critical connector is these nerve chemicals. Now, mm-hmm. why is this so important? Right. Because there are different nerve chemicals that are important in different kinds of brain activities. So when you are feeling happy or when you have a sense of reward or desire, there are parts of the brain where the nerve cells carry a nerve chemical called dopamine. Whereas when you're feeling stressed, there are other parts of the brain that become activated. And the nerve chemical is a different chemical. Mm -hmm. It's corticotropin-releasing hormone. Or it could be serotonin. Um, So there are different nerve chemicals that allow this kind of specificity. All right. So you are reacting to what's happening in your life Mm -hmm. or happening around you. And that has biological consequences in terms of what nerve chemicals are sent out, which make you feel a certain way. Right. And so it's not only the nerve chemicals. Mm -hmm. There's also... Place in the brain is very important. Mm-hmm. So people think of the brain as this one big organ. Um, it's not. It's mm-hmm. like lots of different organs stuck one on each other. There are many different places that talk to each other and communicate. And the order in which they communicate makes a difference. And the parts of the brain that communicate make a di- difference as to how you're receiving inputs from your environment, mm-hmm. sensory inputs, whether it's through your eyes or your ears or your sense of touch or smell or taste. Um, different parts of the brain become active. And then those different parts send signals to other parts of the brain, which could include all these different emotional centers. So there are emotional centers for fear, the amygdala, Mm -hmm. um, anxiety. um, There's emotional centers for stress, the hypothalamus. There's emotional centers for reward, the nucleus accumbens. Um, There are centers in the frontal cortex that are important for working memory, uh, there are parts in of the brain that are that particularly receive signals from self, sort of like your gut reactions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and there are many, many. You know, I could stand spend mm-hmm. the whole afternoon naming different parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. But the point is, all of these can talk to each other. So you could receive a signal, a stressful or fearful signal through your um, ears. You hear a gunshot. Okay. So the part of the brain that that receives sensory signals from the ear lights up becomes active, cells start firing, you know, electrical firing, and nerve chemicals get released. And not only does, does that signal go to a place that allows your, your legs to run okay. so you, you can run away. Sort of the, pra- the pragmatic, immediate, right. physical Right, get reaction, you out of there. Right. But it goes to your stress centers, which give you the energy to run, which make your heart beat faster, and, and so on. So there's a coordinated response of the whole organism to that signal from the outside world. Okay. I want to say we don't, we're not focusing on love necessarily. I mean, I just want to talk about you and your work, so we don't have to. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. I thought it was, no, no. sorry. (laughs) That should talk. Yes. Um, no, this is good. 
So as I understand it, your work in particular has illuminated how, um, let me just look at my notes, how, (laughs) this is, you know, this is really so fascinating, but it's hard to wrap your mind around coming up. But I want, people want to be able to wrap their minds around it, about how how the brain and the immune system communicate. So in other words, how all of this gets connected up and then what it, what it results in. Um, and I'd love for you to tell a little bit of the story that you tell in the book of this whole field, because you're sort of coming at the end of where you're saying, how can we look at this positively? How can we look at this communication in terms of health and healing? But it seems like the beginning was just the discovery or the naming of the concept of stress, which only happened in the last century, in the middle of the last century. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually a very interesting concept. So when you think about the evolution of this whole area of thinking, mm-hmm. you know, I started with the ancient Greeks and then the 16th century anatomists who started figuring out what the different organs do. Um, well, in the 1950s, 40s and 50s, physiology was really reaching its peak um, and the technologies were available to measure electrical uh, inputs or outputs and um, physiological responses of the the blood vessels in the heart. Um, So the 1950s, if you will, was the era of physiology and, um, and also hormones. People were, scientists were beginning to discover hormones. Uh, Taking, um, you know, they would take up, take various, uh, endocrine organs like the thyroid gland and the ovaries and the um, and and extract chemicals from them, actually insulin from the from the pancreas and and th- this was there's a huge advances in understanding what these hormones mm-hmm. do and the fact that hormones do exist and that they're made by certain organs and they go through right. the bloodstream and so on. So Hans Selye was the was a physiologist who um, who really borrowed the word stress from the physicists and used it in the biological oh, sense that we know today. Okay. Okay. And he was a very colorful character. And now, didn't I, you know him? Yes. So mm-hmm. I describe him in the book. And it's funny because I knew him when I was growing up. My father and he were professors at the University of Montreal in the Department of Medicine. And mm-hmm. my father's lab was on the ninth floor um, at the University of Montreal. And Hans Selyus was on the seventh floor. And my sister and I would use, you know, we used to go to the lab and, and play when we were small. And we used to like to play on this spiral staircase um, from uh, outside my father's lab and we'd throw little rolled up balls of paper down the the middle of this (laughs) spiral staircase. I actually went back to the University of Montreal recently and it's still there. Um, (laughs) They would land on the seventh floor? No, we'd have, well, sometimes accidentally. We were trying to aim for the basement, but Mm -hmm. um, they'd sometimes land on the seventh floor and we'd have to run off. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe it was just an excuse to to explore. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we would see this, we we thought a very imposing figure of of Hans Selye in his white coat with his students all behind him and it was kind of like the image that I have in my memory is like like ducklings following the, you know the, the mother <laughs> right. duck and but he was actually he was fairly small and wiry but he had this very you know large personality that filled a room and when I was writing the book I you know I don't authors 
have this fear when you go into a bookstore or a library and you say, why am I writing another book? I mean, there's (laughs) so many out there. What can I do that's different? And and I suddenly realized, you know, not everybody knew Hans Selye when they were a child. And I I put my memories together with also talking to um, his students and colleagues and and, um, asked about his you know, his theories of stress, mm-hmm. which were very revolutionary at the time. And his concept was that stress is the body's nonspecific response to any demand. And he had it marked out. He had it, he had it mapped out um, that there was the hypothalamus, the pituitary, the adrenal glands, and even he put in the immune system at mm. that time. Mm. So he, he proposed that there were hormones that came out of the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and the adrenal glands that would have an effect on how the immune system worked. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, people have asked me, so what's different about that? What, what have we learned in 50 years mm-hmm. that Hans Selye didn't say before? Well, we've learned a, a number of things. First of all, in those days, um, people who thought about this system stopped at the hypothalamus, which is a very deep structure. It's a structure that's present in all uh, in all animals. It's it's a very ancient structure. It's a reflex response, uh, just like your knee jerk. It's mm-hmm. a kind of a you don't have to think when you're stressed, right? Okay. I mean, this is a good right. thing because if you're driving down the street and a car comes out of nowhere, you don't have time to mm-hmm. write a thesis to say, "Am I going to put my foot on the brake or not?" Right? <laughs> right, you, right. You have to do this in a millisecond. So that's a positive function right. of stress. You need the stress response to survive. Okay. That's why it's there. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to respond instantly mm-hmm. to a threatening or dangerous situation and get out of there, mm-hmm. fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And it's not only the hypothalamus, it's also the adrenaline-like nerves, the adrenaline-like nerve structures in the brain that become activated. And those are the things, after pumping out their hormones and nerve chemicals, that make your heart beat fast, that make you sweat, that make you feel all those things that you recognize as stress. There's a noise in here. Is that coming in? Are you hearing that too? Hmm. Getting a... (laughs) Just a funny sound. Keep going. I'm sorry. It's... We started up again. So where do I go back to? You were talking about, so you need stress. Let's just start there. Hmm? You said, you know, you said. That it's your adrenaline-like. Right, right, start. Okay. right. So, so when you feel stress. Oh. I can't hear it in my headphones. No. Mm, yes. Okay. So it's not just the hypothalamus. Right. So when when you feel stressed, when you're exposed to a stressful event, Mm -hmm. um, these different parts of the brain that respond to stressful signals kick in almost immediately, within milliseconds. Um, And so it's not just the hypothalamus. It starts pumping out its stress hormone, CRH, or corticotropin-releasing hormone. It's also the parts of the brain that release adrenaline-like nerve chemicals, mm-hmm. and they release adrenaline-like nerve chemicals from adrenaline-like nerves that go to the heart and that make your heart beat faster. Um, they go to your gut. They go to your skin. You start sweating. All the things that you feel when mm-hmm. you feel stressed are parts of the physiological stress response that happen because those parts of your brain become activated. Now, there's something very important that happens between the bad thing that happens to you, the stressful event, Mm -hmm. and your physiological response that you recognize as stress. And the thing that happens is perception. 
your perception of that event as stressful. Now, going back to Hans Selye, because mm-hmm. that's what we were talking about, the physiologists of the, of the 1950s um, didn't have the tools to really understand how the rest of the brain was working. And so they focused on those deeper parts of the brain, those structures like the hypothalamus and the adrenaline-like nerves, um, and, and how they affected the rest of the body. We have advanced to the point where we can really understand much, much better how we those inputs, those signals from the outside world get interpreted by the brain, mm-hmm. by all these different parts of the brain, and get the overlay of memory hmm. on it so that your memory of certain events can color whether you perceive an event as stressful or threatening and or then, happy or not. And that gets into the life you've lived, the habits you have, right? Everything. And, uh-huh. and, and How healthy you are mentally. Right. And mm-hmm. that's the part that we have, we can hope to change. Mm-hmm. There's not much you can do about your physiological stress response. There's possibly some play there. There's certainly nothing you can do about bad events. Things happen. Right. But it's your perception of these events that one can begin to try to work on through um, through various um, behavioral approaches, okay. through meditation and, and so on. I, w- I want to just say one other thing yeah. about Hans Selye, because it's interesting that he coined the word, as I said, stress. Right. And he went around the world. Now, this, to me, this is one of the most interesting parts of this story. <laughs> Keep going. So he went around the world getting that word into the dictionary of virtually every country. Yes. So that when I was in Japan last year, I asked this audience um, uh, of mostly Japanese speakers, how do you say stress in Japanese? And they said stress. <laughs> so I said, well, I guess I speak Japanese. But it's in every dictionary. Mm-hmm. And and he was very um, um, aggressive in doing this. And, and the sad thing about it was, he also talked to the lay public a lot. And the mm-hmm. lay public, of course, loved this. And as a result, his colleagues um, really disparaged him. Uh, because in those days, and up until very recently, scientists talking to the lay public was, was considered... Um, and we're, this is sort of mid, mid mid-century, 1950s. Yeah, 1950s. mid-century, mm-hmm. right. 1940s, 1950s. I mean, I spent a lot of the 80s in Germany. And, uh-huh. and I remember, as I read your book, I remember, Der Stress. Yes, <laughs> yes, Der Stress. <laughs> and that's very stressig. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, but, but I guess also what's fascinating to me about that is that that human beings experienced what we now call stress forever. Oh, yes. I mean, we know this biochemically, but we also just know that it's well, in the nature of being human. So did, but we didn't have a word for it in any language? Well, well we did. So there, there, we, it was called different things. So um, uh, in the 19th century, it was called nervousness. Okay. okay. And actually, right. there was right. a quote. I, I think I have this quote in my book. Um, that George M. Beard in the 1880s said that the principal cause of nervousness in modern civilization uh, are there are five causes: uh, the periodical press, the telegraph, um, <laughs> the steam ro- the uh, steam railroads, uh-huh. um, the sciences, and the mental activity of women. <laughs> Okay. So so people have perceived the things as stressful for a very long time. And actually this is a really it's it's not being facetious, but what he was describing was the stress of the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. And and you could transpose all of those 
pieces to right. today. Fill in the blanks. Right. The the, the media. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the um, the internet, mm-hmm. uh, constant connection with the with cell phones, mm-hmm. um, and I think what he was talking about and the sciences because mm-hmm. there's all this unknown. Well, there's and, and fear all of, of advancing. Also, ethical uh, dilemmas right. being being exactly by cutting edge science right. that people are facing in their doctors' same, offices. Same same thing yeah. exactly. And the mental activity of women. I think what mm-hmm. he was talking about is the social change right. that comes along with technological change, mm-hmm. especially rapid technological mm-hmm. change. So now he would say the breakdown of the family or, or higher whatever. divorce rates. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and so it's really, we're living in an information age. Now, but how does this come to stress? How, why is it that these things are stressful? Because change, novelty, is one of the most potent triggers of the stress response. And that's a good thing. Because when an animal finds itself in a new environment, so if a field mouse wanders into a new field, if it didn't have a stress response, if it wouldn't suddenly sit up and look around and become vigilant and focused and ready to fight or flee, if it just went to sleep, it would get eaten by the next cat that came along, right? So you need your stress response to survive, and novelty must, therefore, trigger the stress response. So the problem happens when the stress response goes on too long, mm-hmm. when it's active, when it shouldn't be active, um, when it, you're pumping out these hormones and nerve chemicals at max, and that's when you get sick. And that's when these chemicals and hormones have an effect on the immune system and change its ability to fight disease. Well, let's talk about that because that's that's where you work. Or, mm-hmm. or that's I think you go farther than that, but you start with what it is about stress that can make us sick and that we have new ways of understanding that. And it's very interesting because, mm-hmm. I mean, as I read you, it's not just that, and I think this is maybe the way a lot of us have internalized it, stress makes you sick. Yes. It is, right? It's, it, right. It's, it's a, not the stress that makes you mm-hmm. sick. It's that the stress response, those hormones and nerve chemicals, mm-hmm. go to the immune system through the bloodstream, um, through the nerve endings that then hit immune cells that are nearby and change how immune cells work. Right. So that, I mean, this is what you've explained to me, that they calm down, mm-hmm. <coughs> that that same response uh, that calms you down or that is a byproduct of, of this whole cascade of stress responses, also dampens your immune system. Well, no, it doesn't calm you down because you're pumping out all these hormones yeah. that, that activates you. Right. That's giving you the stress response. Mm-hmm. That's making you fight or flee. It's giving you the energy. It's, but, if you're, but, but that cortisol, that, that hormone from the adrenal glands, mm-hmm. is the most potent anti-inflammatory drug that our body makes. Now, why do I say drug? Because cortisone the pharmacologic form of cortisol, uh, which is what your adrenals make, the the Nobel Prize was given in 1950 for the discovery that that could be used as a drug, that cortisone could be used as an anti-inflammatory drug for arthritis. It didn't occur to scientists and physicians at that time that that wasn't just a drug. That was the body's own way of tuning down the immune response so it didn't go out of control. Okay, so something like arthritis is, in fact, an overactive immune system. Correct. Okay. Arthritis, um, Crohn's disease, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, lupus, um, these are all overactive immune responses. Inflammation 
can be a good thing. Well, just as stress can be a good thing in the right context and a bad thing when it goes on too long, inflammation is the same. You need your immune cells to be active to create inflammation to fight bacteria, to chew up the bugs, take them away, get rid of them. But then the immune system has to turn off. It has to have an exit strategy. It has to go back to sleep. It can't be active all the time, but it has to be ready to become active on a moment's notice when a foreign invader arrives. So there has to be an on-off switch, and there are on-off switches within the immune system, within immune cells and between immune cells. They're called cytokines. They're they're hormones and chemicals that immune cells make to allow each other to talk to each other and say, hey, there's a bacteria here that we've got to get rid of. Let's chew it up, get rid of it, and and move on. Or let's make antibodies. Um, and But there, it turns out that the nervous system plays a very important role in this on-off switch. And there are actually certain nerve chemicals that turn immune cells on, mm-hmm. and there are certain ones that turn immune cells off. And cortisol happens to be one that turns immune cells off very powerfully. And so there is this coordinated... Um, sequence of events that occurs between the immune system and the brain where they must talk to each other in order to keep things in balance. So if you're, um, if you get a splinter in your, in your big toe, um, your immune cells stream to the site, clear away the debris. Um, and, and then they have to stop. They have to go away. Uh, say you have a bigger inflammation and you have an appendicitis. Um, the immune cells, are acting, are reacting, they're, they're sending signals to each other. At the same time, those same immune molecules go to the brain, and they turn on the brain's stress center. And the brain's stress center then activates this whole cascade of hormones, and cortisol is released, which then shuts off that immune response when it's no longer needed. Okay. So the problem occurs if there's a break in the system, if there's the wiring isn't right, if, you know, the, the light switch doesn't turn the light bulb on in the ceiling, and, you know, you can, there can be a problem with the light switch, there can be a problem with the bulb, or there can be a problem with the wires in between. And it's the same thing with immune disease, that if the brain's uh, hormones are not, and nerve chemicals are not able to turn off that inflammation when it needs to be turned off, the discovery that I made is that there can be an actual problem in that circuit that predisposes to developing arthritis. It doesn't mean that stress is causing arthritis. Mm-hmm. It's this. It's that the the, um, the the on-off switch is not working right. It's either stuck in the on position or stuck in the off position. In the case of arthritis, it's stuck in the off position because you can't pump out enough of those hormones to shut off inflammation when you need to shut it off. Now, the other side of the coin is when you're chronically stressed, and this is work by uh, the Glazers at Ohio State, uh, Jan Kekot Glazer and Ron Glazer, um, they've shown that in chronic caregivers of Alzheimer's patients or in people undergoing marital stress, where you're chronically stressed and you're chronically pumping out these stress hormones that are anti-inflammatory, your immune cells are going to be bathed in this anti-inflammatory milieu and will be therefore less able to fight infection. Okay. Okay. So then if you're exposed to a flu bug, a virus, or a, a you know, bacteria, you're less able to fight that and you're more likely to get sick from infections. You're less able to make antibodies when you get vaccines. And it takes twice as long 
for wounds to heal because you need your immune system for wound healing. Mm-hmm. So, so there's no question that um, when when these connections are out of balance, either too much as in chronic stress or too little in people with autoimmune inflammatory disease, that's when you get sick. So does all of this knowledge um, then kind of reduce us to a mass of chemicals or does it, does it give us more control? Well, that's a very good question. Well, I think it, for me, it gives me more control. And, mm-hmm. and I actually think, I think when I, you know, go around speaking to, to general audiences, um, I've asked people that, that, you know, we don't have all the answers now, certainly to various diseases, but, but at least we, we know this is real. Is that good enough? And I think people are relieved to know that all these feelings that they've had are real. You know, that, that we can explain it with with nerve chemicals and nerve pathways and, and hormones and so on. It's not all in your head. You're not crazy if you say that stress made me sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, follow the latest advances in medicine. Of course you should. But understanding these principles, I think, allows you to... Um, to give yourself the permission, for instance, if you're a chronic a caregiver of an Alzheimer's patient, if you understand that by pushing yourself to the max, you're going to really have physiological burnout, not just psychological burnout, that you yourself will get sick. I think it should be easier to to then not feel so guilty about like giving yourself a break, giving yourself a break, getting help, um, um, getting social support, mm-hmm. or taking not a saying vacation. I shouldn't feel I shouldn't be feeling this way. Right. Mm-hmm. That the, these things are real. That mm-hmm. and and also to know that it's your biology. If you can't overcome stress, I mean, this is another problem with the self help movement is that I think people feel if they can't fix it on their own, then they fail, that they're terrible people and they feel bad about themselves. And and to know that there's a biology to it. And if you come to the point where you really are in such distress, you really do need to seek professional help from somebody who knows how to treat all aspects of, of stress-related illness. You say something interesting that... Um that emotions, so that so that you, someone like you, that all of us really, with the new vocabulary of science, that we can talk about emotions and disease, e- each of these things as real, and still that we need different languages, or that we we possess different languages for talking about them, for describing them. Is that... um, well, I mean, the language of science. When I say the language of science, I mean that scientists need evidence. Mm-hmm. We need hard evidence, data. We have to be able to measure something to know that it's real. Um, so, so you know, going back to the anatomists, if their their view of it is if you couldn't see it, it wasn't real. Actually, until very recently, if you couldn't see it, it wasn't real. But we have different ways of, quotes seeing things. So you can see the biochemistry by doing, you know, biochemical assays. You can see how the genes function by doing gene assays. Um, So there are many different approaches to science. And when I say a language of science, it's that by proving that, for example, in this strain of rats um, that is highly prone to arthritis, that we could actually measure that that part of the brain that controls the stress response 
is under-functioning. It's not only under-functioning, it's not really functioning at all. Um, and, and in the strain of rats that ha- is resistant to arthritis, it has a very potent stress, very high stress response in that part of the brain. We could actually measure the molecules in that part of the brain. That's what I mean by the language of science. We're not saying that that rat is stressed. We're saying that we can measure the differences in the molecules in that part of the brain that controls the stress response. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask Kate if for the, their responses and questions that are coming up for them, and then keep going. Because I also I never finished the story of Crete, so remind me. Oh, to... oh we will. I, work, I know a way to come back to that. Okay. We will come back. To... <laughs> I'm not letting you get out of here without telling us. <laughs> Kate, can you talk to us? Okay. <coughs> For those of you who have to leave, please do so quietly. So, oh, it's like the what? He's making joke. announcements. Oh, um, it's, like, if... it's like one of the lectures. Oh. oh, turn off your cell phones. <laughs> oh, did you? No, I did that. Don't worry. Um, I think we do want to finish the story of Crete. I also would um, like to hear more about how the, the, the coincidence of sort of working, for example, on the Scientific American paper and tending your mother's... Oh, right. Did We, we never finished that, did we? We never really tied that oh, yeah. together. And I think that feels important. I can't me. remember where we stopped with that. Um, oh, that she wanted me to talk more about belief yeah, and then yeah. how that... Okay, so I need to finish that thread. I'll... I'll, I'll um, I'll turn these into on-air questions. So, yeah, I think finish that thread. And you mm-hmm. didn't, you didn't quite tell the story about your uh, um, my arthritis. Your own so that's arthritis. how I need to finish yeah. that whole thread. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. The other thing that comes to mind is, and you allude to this in, in your talk yesterday. You talked about the need for people to um, to shut down. At a oh yeah, um, as a form of self-care. Right, right. We're going to do that. Um, when I was at the talk yesterday and stayed afterwards, you know, there was a throng of people there who came up to you. Oh, you're telling me I was there for an hour. I mean, really? this, is, this was a riveting thing. Mm-hmm. These people, I think, know a little better than to come to you and say, would you just please heal me? Yeah. <laughs> Could I feel a little mm-hmm. better right. about mm-hmm. waking up? But um, I do think that um, all of this translates into the fact that we're living in a world where a lot of people are just stressed. don't mm-hmm. feel good going about their day. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Now, we talked in sort of the abstract about stress right. and the change in the world and, st- and in the 19th century or earlier, mm-hmm. Industrial Revolution. But I think it would be really helpful for the listener to sort of hone in on, on today's world. What we know about how we all are feeling, why mm-hmm. that might be the case, and why this knowledge mm-hmm. might be able to help uh-huh. us. Um, I no, also are, are you no, I'll, do, yeah, I'll, I'll get you there. A really good point to um, return to this idea, again, that you allude to with self-help, that people feel that now they know enough that, you know, they can take Paxil and see a talk therapist mm-hmm. and do yoga, and so why isn't that, you know, just enough? Why isn't that the fix? Why can't they make the fix to their own okay. um, kind of sense of well-being? And I, I just, I think, so that's what okay. I thought. Okay. Okay. So you'll get me there? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Maybe I should start going back to the to my mother's, or did you have no, another idea? No, I'm going to get you there. I think, we'll, I think I will circle back to it. Um, and then if we, we'll circle back to it in a kind of organic way, and then okay. if we find that we want to cut and paste it up there, okay. we can do that too. Okay. By the modern, 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 modern technology. technology. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I think uh, I think we haven't talked, and so we've talked about kind of the physiology of what goes wrong, and I want to talk about what you know about how we can influence that physiology. And there's a question you ask, you know, can loving make you well? Can believing make you well? Right. Um, what are the answers to those questions? Well, so so maybe I should go back to my my own experience in this. I mm-hmm. was very focused on these very um, endocrinological, molecular neuroscience studies and and analyzing all the different nerve pathways that are involved in the stress response and so on and the differences in these arthritis-prone rats and arthritis-resistant rats. But the, the converse of that, the corollary of that, is that if you understand how breaking the connections can make you ill, then perhaps you can figure out how you can fix those connections, right? Right. And again, the light bulb analogy. Mm-hmm. If you know the circuitry and the light bulb goes out, then it's just a question of working your way back and figuring out how to fix mm-hmm. it and what part needs to be fixed. So, so, so starting with the premise that if these connections are broken, you get sick, then you can say, okay, what are the things that one can do to fix these connections. Well, if you're pumping out too much of those stress hormones, so if you're chronically stressed and your immune system is tuned down, what are the things that you can do intuitively to, um, to reduce that, to get that back to balance? Um, and, and these are the things that are being worked on now and, and are certainly being worked on increasingly. Um, but that when I started to write the book and when I wrote the Scientific American article, so it's like about 10 years ago when I was writing the Scientific American article, these things were not being addressed in a particularly scientific manner. Um, but, but you can begin to think about, about taking yourself offline. Hmm. Um, what are the things that take you offline so you're not chronically stressed? What do you mean by that analogy? Well, so the analogy that I often give when I'm speaking is is when when your computer is jammed up, when your email is jammed up with with spam, um, what do you do? You shut down and reboot, right? We know this about computers. We don't seem to know it about our bodies and ourselves. Mm-hmm. So shutting down and rebooting is a really important thing to do. So if you're working 24-7 on a deadline and you're exhausted, um, if you're a chronic caregiver of an Alzheimer's patient, taking yourself away from that situation as much as you can. I mean, you, you may not be able to. Um, you may not be able to get yourself completely away, especially if you're worried about a loved one. But there are things that you can do to remove yourself. A vacation is one. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my, in my own case, when, when I was writing that article by my mother's bedside, um, and in the last throes of her illness flying up to Montreal all the time and, and under a huge amount of stress, very worried and anxious. And and then after she died, uh, you know, going through the grieving process, um, around that period, I became sick myself. I developed an inflammatory arthritis, um, not rheumatoid arthritis, but something like it. And, you know, of course, there were the genes in the family that you can't you know, these diseases don't just come from stress. There has to be some predisposition. But the question is, 
why did I develop it at that moment in time? Why didn't I develop it five years before or five years later? And, and I believe there's no question and there's evidence to support the notion that being chronically stressed can be associated with triggering these sorts of diseases from burnout. Did it, did it help you as that happened to you because you knew something of the biochemistry? Well, it's funny because I don't, I don't, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, because my emotional brain was not reacting that way at all. Um, and, and actually, you know, when I, when I think of it, another example that women who've had children will resonate with, when, when my daughter was born, I, um, I, I was, uh, I didn't have anesthesia. And, um, the, there was one part of my brain that understood what was going on. And then another that was totally terrified. Um, and, and, and no amount of understanding the anatomy and physiology of this was going to correct my fear. Um, I mean, I guess it sort of corrected it, but not completely. So, so I think that one or, can... And it couldn't take away your pain beyond oh. a certain extent either. Well, what it did is it, I, I knew that yeah. how, I figured out how long it was going to last and it okay. to a certain extent took away my pain, okay. but, but, um, so, so the analogy with being sick I guess what happens when you understand the anatomy and physiology of the system is that you um, you can stand back and become an observer of your own situation. So you, you can, to a certain extent, treat yourself as the patient and, and dissociate yourself from yourself. But then there's the patient side of you that really doesn't feel great. <laughs> it doesn't go away. It doesn't still. go away. Yeah. So, and you may not do the right things. So knowing all this stuff, I didn't stop. Um, you know, I, I just burnt myself out effectively. Um, but so after, um, after the article came out and this was shortly after my mother died, um, the editors of the scientific American book side, um, cause the book and the magazine are kind of separate. The editor came to Washington and asked me to write, uh, a book in the style uh, on the subject of the article, on the subject subject of the science of the mind-body connection, but in a style that the lay public would want to read, not that they have to read to pass an exam. Okay. And, um, and so I started writing the book proposal with this editor, um, and I was sitting in my new house. I just moved into a new house, and I was sitting there on the computer writing. And my neighbors from next door, who were Greek, rang the doorbell, and came carrying food and gifts to welcome me. And they saw me writing on the computer, and they said, um, are you a writer? And I said, I guess so. I'm writing a book proposal. I never really thought of myself as a writer, but why do you ask? And they said, oh, because we've always wanted a writer to stay at our cottage in Crete. <laughs> so I said, I'm a writer. Right. <laughs> and so I went with them to their cottage in Crete. Now, at that point in time... I had just undergone a series of knee biopsies and all sorts of high-powered tests for my arthritis because I wanted to. Here I was being the physician. Okay. I wanted to understand exactly what this was all about. I wanted to have every possible new advance, new whatever new therapy was coming on the horizon, I wanted to try it out. So I went through this whole sophisticated scientific protocol um, and 
um, and was scheduled to go into hospital for more of this workup and to be put on a new drug. And and they came. This is when my my neighbors arrived, and so they said, "Just come come with us to Crete." And I said, "Okay," and I'll go into hospital after I come right. back. I would. I just want to say. So you. I mean, that becomes the setting in which it, you. It says you, you. You say that you had some healing and that you wrote yes. the book, but all the way through the work, there's a real sense of place that's important. I mean, you tell the story of where other scientists were when they made discoveries. Yes. Um, was that some? Was is that is that is that uh, something that you came to? value and appreciate because of this experience of going to create no no actually it was for a much more practical reason i wanted people when they read the book to feel that i was taking them by the hand and showing them the experiments showing them the people who did the experiments Mm -hmm. and i wanted them to feel that they were there as if they were a student watching these experiments and so all I did was close my eyes and remember, for the modern uh, studies that I describe, mm-hmm. remember the places where these things happened, the labs, what they looked like, the people whom I knew uh, who made these discoveries. There were many people who discovered all the different ways in which the brain and the immune system communicate. And so I, without realizing it, set the stage describe the place, describe the characters, mm-hmm. and put the action in. Um, and so that's really all I wanted to do was make people feel that they were there, and and that's how I did it. I, it's interesting that architects like reading the book because I do describe You do a good job of place. describing place, yes. And I did, you know, so with places like Padua and the dissecting theater, the amphitheater that was used in the 16th century, um, I had had the privilege of seeing this amazing place in the Palazzo del Bo in Padua, and I, I described it from memory and then went back and and checked my memory out. Mm-hmm. And, and the same thing with the... Um, uh, uh, Wilder Penfield's um, neurosurgical theater operating room in uh, at McGill at the uh, Montreal Neurological Institute. So all these things I'd remembered from when I was a medical student, and you know, at McGill and being in that amphitheater, and 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 then I went back and and checked it out and made sure it was accurate. Right. But do we also know things about what happens in our brains? When we take ourselves to beautiful places, or I don't know, I guess another example would be places that are very familiar where we know. Yeah, so this is what, so so more and more is being discovered now, now that we have brain imaging. Um, Now, you can't do brain imaging in a beautiful place because... You know, you can't take the PET scanner or the fMRI machine and stick it on the beach in Crete. Crete, exactly. But you can do virtual reality. So people are beginning to do these kinds of studies. It's you know it's it's not quite there yet because you don't really feel like you're in in these real places but people are beginning to use video games um you know to 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 mimic you know different sorts of settings um um people have done studies on um children um uh watching uh, the movie ET and scoring the happy sad times and and measuring also all sorts of uh, physiological responses so so there are ways of getting at these questions which we can begin to address now with advances in uh, in brain imaging i mean which suggests that vacation or a retreat 
um, is not self-indulgent. It is in fact right. good for you physically. So, so I mean, get, getting back to the to to the to the book and the chapter on can yeah. believing make you well. When when I was writing that book proposal, our first thought, my thought, and the editor's thought was that um, the chapter on how stress makes you sick would be a solid scientific chapter, and the chapter on how believing could make you well would debunk that notion. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought that there are a lot of indirect pieces of evidence um, that one can piece together to construct um, a logical argument that believing, we're not talking about what you're believing in or who you're believing in, but the act of feeling spiritual, maybe that's what I really mean, that feeling of wonder and awe that one gets when one is in a spiritual place. And maybe that gets back to my mother's description of gardening. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's that spirituality, that awe of life, that, you know, thrill of seeing a sunset. When when we were, when my sister and I were small, um, my parents would, um, whenever... We, we lived at the base of, of Mount Royal, which is a hill in Montreal. And and um, whenever it looked like there was a beautiful sunset, we would drop everything. We were washing the dishes. We were having dinner, whatever. We'd pile into the car, drive up to the University of Montreal, which was on the top of one of the uh, hills, and look at the sunset. And I guess I assumed that everybody used to do this as a child. <laughs> but I think what that did is it inspired in us the um, sort of an awe of nature and life and beauty. In part, I think, because my parents were, they had been through the war. They had been both born in Romania, and my father had been in a um, probably what was a kind of starvation concentration camp in in Russia. He was a physician. He managed to get out, and my mother had uh, gotten out before the war. But I I think for them, it was very palpable Life and peace meant a lot to them. I remember sitting in, in some, on summer mornings on, on the terrace um, at home with my father early in the morning and um, having breakfast, and he would look up. He used to read, read a lot. And he'd look up and he'd say, Stop, listen. Listen to the sounds of peace. You know, you'd hear the birds chirping and the dog barking and the tennis balls on the tennis court across the way. And and I think all those things were, I guess, became part of me to understand that you can find a place of peace if you stop and look and listen. And And I think that's what happened to me in Crete. So when I went with my, with my neighbors to Crete, to their little cottage, and I did bring my laptop, but unfortunately the um <laughs> the um voltage voltage yes, you got it i had <laughs> I had the the converter whatever for mm. the voltage, and it blew on the first paragraph, and so they they never forgave me because they said I thought you were going to be writing your book, <laughs> but I wrote it in my mind, and I enjoyed the place and i and what happened is I would swim every day in these warm, wonderful waters of the mediterranean and and at first I couldn't walk very well, but by the end of the time, and it wasn't that long that I was there, I was able to climb up these these hills of sort of scrabbly rock. And Despite your arthritis. Yes, because uh-huh. of my arthritis. Uh-huh. I couldn't. And, but by the end of it, um, and there was 
you know, all these grandmothers in the village would feed me and, and were very concerned and my neighbors were concerned. And, and there was this wonderful old man. He must have been in his 80s and he had cancer. And every morning he would climb this hill. The, 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 the town was on quite a steep hill going down to the sea. And, and he would climb with his, with his cane, a kind of a gnarled stick, and climb very slowly. And he'd come up to this cottage and give me a grapefruit or an orange. <laughs> and, you know, when you, when you see that and you see that somebody in much worse situation and much older than you is still going outside of himself to take care of you, mm-hmm. I, it, it can't help but have a beneficial effect. And then I would climb up to the top of the, the hill above the town, which had this ruins of a temple to Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. Right. And and on top of the temple site, as is pretty typical, there was a Byzantine church. And then on top of that, there was a tiny little Greek chapel that was modern, but I think it was about 300 years old. And there were all these these icons and the candles uh, to the icons. And, and it was just the most amazing, peaceful place. And I would sit out there and look at the ocean and just stay for hours and and crawl around the ruins and, and you look at these amazing things. Um, and... And it gave me a sense of peace, and it was really a sense of spirituality, of place and time. Um, and I think it was very important in healing. And and I didn't consciously think about it at the time. But mm-hmm. then when I came back uh, to Washington, I didn't need to go into hospital. Now, you you could argue, and, and the, the physician side of me says, well, I had been put on high power medications before I left. Okay. It took some in. time to kick in, mm-hmm. right? It, they don't kick in right away. It took mm-hmm. a few some time to kick in. But just as I asked before, why did I get sick at that very moment when I was stressed? Why not five years before or five years later? You've got to assume that the stress response had something to do with it. Why did I get better in such a relatively short time after I had this period of rest uh, and social support, healthy diet, beginning gradually to exercise more and more. Why did, I, why did I get better then and not a month later? I think what was happening is I was allowing those medications to kick in because mm-hmm. I wasn't forcing my body to work against them. Right. You don't see, you don't see uh, the efforts that we can make to, to manage stress as uh, an alternative to medicine. Oh, absolutely not. To medicine. A partner, absolutely not, yeah. You know what this makes me think, though? I mean, and even when you tell the story about your parents and them helping you appreciate a peaceful moment or a beautiful sunset, we don't all have that. And it, 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 it seems like even though there are these ways to, to use this knowledge we have about what's happening in our bodies and how that's connected with our emotions... Mm. We we come we come to this knowledge with different degrees of with different wounds and yeah. weaknesses and different degrees of damage from from our families. You talked about how memory plays a role in this and how we've been traumatized by memories differently. I don't know. How do you think about this? It seems like a sort of built-in inequity in terms of how we can use the knowledge. Well, I, I think that the memories can go both ways. So you can have positive memories that trigger positive emotional responses and a flood of possum of a flood of positive um nerve chemicals endorphins you know those dopamine rewards 
reward chemicals. Um, and you can have negative memories that trigger the stress response. Um, and, you know, again, it's, it's a question of a week vacation isn't going to do it for everybody. You know, it depends on how deep the wounds are, at what stage you are in the grieving process, um, the, 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 your genetic makeup, um, whether you have the genes that predispose to depression or not, whether these kinds of wounds then trigger a biological depression that just can't be fixed with a vacation. They need mm-hmm. to be, this sort of thing needs to be fixed with fixing the imbalance in the nerve chemicals with antidepressant drugs together with psychotherapy and cognitive behavior therapy, working on those memories. That's what psychotherapy is about. Mm-hmm digging deep into those memories. It, it, you can't do it overnight. You oh, that's know. Another, another way to think about how then, we even talked about psychotherapy, but how psychotherapy fits into this, um, this, this kind of whole picture of what's going on with us when we're not functioning as well as we could, well, or as I, healthy as we could be. Well, I think my way of thinking about it, and now we're getting more into speculation than into, into science, but when you think about meditation... Because that's another thing that changes the way the brain works. Mm-hmm. And we can measure that. We can and measure see it. that, right. Mm-hmm. And when you look at Richie Davidson and the University of Wisconsin has done this with meditating monks, the sort of Olympic meditators. <laughs> um, and, and there are different parts of the brain that become active and different parts that shut down. Uh, and meditation is a state, just like being awake or being asleep, but it's a different state than being awake or being asleep. Um, and so we don't fully understand exactly what happens um, when one is meditating, but clearly there are different nerve chemicals and, that are released uh, in those states. And, and there's evidence to uh, believe now that meditation can change how your immune system works, probably through these nerve chemicals. So, so meditation is one. Psychotherapy is another. Yoga. Exercise. When you have a runner's high, when you're... When you're, when you're I swim, and, and after, it's probably about 10 or 15 minutes of swimming, you get into this peaceful zone where you hear the water lapping up against you, and you're more aware of the, the birds chirping and the, 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 you know, the, the leaves and the trees and the sun glinting off the leaves. And So something is happening in your brain where you become more sense, your sensory input is, is much more um, sharp, and people who meditate say the same thing. Um, now, I think what's happening in all of these settings is you're relearning how to perceive that stressful event. So, you know, if you think of learning how to ride a bicycle, the first time you get on a bicycle when you're a kid, you, you fall, fall off, mm-hmm. right? You need to get on about 50 times, okay? It's known that if you're going to learn something, you have to do it repetitively about 50 times. That's why your mother told you to practice piano every okay, day, right? Okay. And you're saying that the same thing that happens in your brain when you practice piano, that you finally get it. You it's finally get it. There is an aha moment. Your yes. perception, to your response right. to stress. And, and, and psychotherapy, you can go over and over and over again, those same loops. And, and your therapist can tell you, which many of them don't, because they're trained not to tell you consciously what's going on there, but... You need to come to it yourself mm-hmm. after going over and over and over it about 50 or maybe more times. Um, and then you suddenly get it. There's that aha moment. Okay. Tell me about other really basic parts of life that we're learning that, that, that can make us 
stronger and and aid in healing. I don't know. I mean, just relationship, touch, hugs. Oh, so, well, I have a chapter in the book called The Social World and Health. And uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful new area that we're, we're, again, just beginning to learn about. You know, if the notion that stress could make you sick was hard for scientists to swallow... And believing could make you well was hard. The social world is just about as hard. Um, But there are ways to measure social interactions, measure the positive or negative kinds of social interactions, and and then measure, you know, all sorts of physiological responses and and immune outputs and so on. And one of the interesting things that um, Sheldon Cohn and Bruce Rabin and others in um, Pittsburgh found which is counterintuitive, is that the more positive, the richer the social interactions per unit time, so per day. They asked people, how many social interactions did you have yesterday? Seven, two, one, ten. Um, and they found that the numbers of social interactions correlated with um, health or illness. So the more social interactions the less illness, the yeah, less severe... To, to all be good social interactions? Uh, in general, yeah. I mean, the yeah. first studies that they did, they didn't quali- qualitatively define, but it, it turns out that you do need good social interactions. But but so what it speaks to is a rich network of social support. But you would assume, I would assume, that the more people you have contact with in a day, the more likely you are to get sick from whatever germs are floating around. Okay. But it, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what I would assume. Right. <laughs> But it turns out to be the opposite. And we don't fully understand why that is. And here's another thing about science. No one approach will answer all the questions. So that tells you an association. It doesn't tell you why or what or how, but it just tells you there's an association. So now studies can be done to to try to understand what happens during these social interactions. Is it positive interactions that are necessary? Is it just being with other people? Um, We also know that isolation is associated with more illness. Mm Um, and so there's a stress of isolation. And then what are the elements of social interactions? <coughs> so, so what are the elements of social interactions that can be important? There's, you know, there's the intellectual, there's the emotional, there's the touch. So people like John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago um, did studies on hand-holding on hand-holding between um, friends and strangers and measured physiological responses and blood pressure, heart rate, and so on. And and when um, these undergraduates, they do psychological studies on undergraduates who are always very willing to volunteer, uh, when they held the hand of a friend, their heart rate variability, their heart rate went down and their, and their blood pressure went down. And if you hold the hand of a of a stranger, then it goes up. Well, that makes sense. Right. Um, but so there's the beginnings of studies that do show that all sorts of aspects of social interactions are, are important. Very kind of mundane social interactions. Mm-hmm. We need to finish, but I mean, I think I want to ask you, and maybe you've answered this question, but I, I want to see if there's anything else you would say about it. You, you wrote, when I began this book, I started from the perch of the scientific skeptic. I just want to ask how this process changed you. Well, I mean, there's no question that the whole experience in Greece, and I wrote the book Grieving My Mother. It was a, really, I was working through my own grief, and I would reach deep inside me to ask why it is that 
for example, I would just be anxious after work to run home and, and write and sit in front of the fire in the winter. And what is it about the fireplace that was making me feel so good? I mean, familiarity. It's, it's memories of childhood. Um, reducing stress. If novelty turns on the stress response, familiarity reduces it. That's well known. And, and so, so I guess I, it, what it did is it made me blend those two sides of me, the skeptical scientist who focused on the, on the quantitative, on the experiments, and the side of me that is a person and, and that feels. And, um, and that it, it really, I did work through these, um, these feelings uh, in the course of it. So, and, and also seeing that I actually did get better by, uh, by doing all those things that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you look around the world we live in, the culture, our culture, American culture, knowing what you know, I think having named the word stress or invented it, we now probably overuse it. Um, everyone I know feels overwhelmed by stress. So do I. Mm-hmm. Mm. What would you wish for us? What are some simple things that you would like to see happening that you think could make life feel more manageable? Well, first of all, I think you're right that we do, we live in an era now that is not only filled with very rapid technological change. So in that way, it's like the industrial revolution that I described before. But we also live in a fearful world, which for Americans um, is a relatively new thing. Um, It always used to be over there. And since... 2001, September 11th, it's come here. You know, the rest of the world has lived with this for many, many centuries. Um, And we've had the privilege um, to not have to uh, deal with the fear of the unknown day to day. But I think there's no question that when I speak to audiences, there is a lot of fear and stress out there. Um, of just not knowing what's going to happen next. Now, maybe, you know, maybe in the 1960s with the fear of uh, nuclear weapons and so on, uh, we had that too. Uh, you know, every era thinks they're the only ones that yeah, are ever stressed. I, I wonder if, if we overestimate right. how special we are. Yeah, I, I think that there's an element of that. But then we're also constantly bombarded by the media. Um, we weren't always aware of a tsunami on the other side of the world. And now we are, and it's all very real. And... Um, and so I think there has to be a way to balance that. And, and it may not always be possible, but I do think we need to find each one of us our place of peace and try to go there every day. You know, um, we, we, we take our cars in to be serviced every 5,000 miles or whatever it is. <laughs> right. We don't do that with ourselves. And it I'm sure it's different for every person. Some people may find it through meditation, some through prayer, some through yoga, some through exercise, some through music, some through reading, some through art. You know, whatever it is that does it for you. Um, you know, if you have small children, it's really hard to do that because um, you get yes. up in the morning, you're driving carpool, you're, you're always 
running around and you know the 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 situation of the the woman in the middle who's taking care of the small children and the elderly parents and but but I do believe and you may not be able to work this out on your own you may need to find help of a professional you know a therapist or a social worker or somebody who can sit down with you and say okay this is how you need to structure your day this is how you need to get help to help you go offline for even a short period of time i am a big believer in 10 minutes is better than no minutes okay and and i i mean for me in the summer i swim every day um and i used to feel guilty if i didn't swim 20 or 25 minutes but i've decided that well, 10 minutes is fine and and you know i think that's any num- any amount of time that you can devote to going offline in whatever way you find um will help and then again i can't say it more often i can't say it often enough if you can't do it on your own seek help and that is that is your prescription as a physician too. yes that is my prescription <laughs> as a physician yes all right well thank you so much it's been a pleasure yeah <laughs>